Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Do not touch that iPhone. This is, in fact, the Remnant Podcast, but this is not Jonah Goldberg. This is David French filling in for the second time for Jonah, who is in an undisclosed location far, far from internet. But I've got a treat for you. You don't have Jonah today. But you do have my former National Review colleague, esteemed, brilliant mind in the conservative movement, one Mr. Ramesh Panuru. Ramesh, I can say welcome back to The Remnant. I've never hosted you before, but you've been on The Remnant before, as I recall. Yes, I'm sure this will be much better. <laughs> so which, how Thanks many times is me. this? How many times is this on The Remnant for you? Um, two. This is this is number two or number three. I think actually the only other time I was on that I can remember, um, Jonah just said, "Hey, somebody just canceled. Could you please, <laughs> could you do my show in fifteen minutes?" Oh no! Well, and I happened to in, be upstairs from him back in the old days when you know people went to offices. Right off. I don't even remember what an office is, but uh, we're gonna we're going to talk to Ramesh about. The future of the GOP. We're going to talk about 2020 election. We're just going to kind of see where this takes us. But as a launching pad for the conversation, since we're now, you know, just a, a day or so removed from the VP announcement and it's and Kamala Harris, I'm just, we'll launch it off by I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to react to a tweet uh, from Henry Olson. And this, this tweet is actually contrary to a lot of the right side of my Twitter feed, which has basically said that. Kamala Harris, the the selection of Kamala Harris makes Biden more likely to lose. But here's what Henry Olson says, and he wrote it in the Washington Post. If Hollywood had been asked to cast a safe, plausible VP nominee for the modern Democratic Party, it would have cast Kamala Harris. This selection changes nothing about the race whatsoever. Agree or disagree? I agree. I think that... Uh Look, well, to take a step back, I think that Biden made a mistake by announcing early on that he was going to pick a woman. Um, I think that uh, that narrowed his options quite a lot, particularly since it ended up meaning that he had to pick a non-white woman Mm -hmm. uh, and just just slim pickings there. And then he given the other imperative for him, which is given his age, um, that he picked somebody who was plausibly presidential material meant that he couldn't pick various people who had never been elected statewide um, to anything. Uh, and you're sort of left with Harris at that point. Um, but the key thing I mean, is to play it safe pick in the sense that they, they weren't behind. They knew they weren't behind. Mm-hmm. The key thing is not to make a mistake. If you're right. far behind, maybe you would pick some sort of exciting conversation starting um, choice like Sarah Palin in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, but that wasn't their situation. And so they went with the person that everybody sort of expected was the most likely running mate for Biden from day one uh, in Harris. So yeah, I don't think that uh, it's likely to have a huge effect on the race. Yeah, I felt the same way. I mean, the way I thought about it was Biden is mainstream Democrat. I mean, he almost defines mainstream Democrat. Um, Harris is mainstream Democrat as well, although a little left of Biden. Um, Although it's kind of interesting to watch Biden attack her from the left on the debate stage about her her record, uh, you know, her record as a prosecutor. Uh, But they're both about as mainstream as you can get. But the mainstream of the Democratic Party 
has moved left. So yes, she is a, definitely a woman of the left, but she is also at the same time a mainstream Democrat. And from that standpoint, I thought this just doesn't really move the needle very much. Yeah. I mean, the Democratic Party, I think, has been moving left pretty much since the middle of the Clinton administration. for yeah. So for a quarter century now. And Biden is sort of always in the middle of the Democratic Party and mm-hmm. he doesn't lead it. He just he follows where it goes for the most part. Um, I guess you could make a put an asterisk on that over same sex marriage where he kind of led the Obama White House. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, but Biden's to the left of where he used to be, just as the party is to the left of where it used to be. Um, it's not quite as far left as um, the Twitter Democratic Party. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why Biden won the nomination was because he has uh, the sort of IRL uh, Democratic yeah. Party and had a, had a sense of where that was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. To the I, Here's my thought. To the extent her selection matters at all, is material in any way, I think it would be material on two points. One is that it makes it harder for the, for the Trump campaign, although I think they'll still try, to cast Biden-Harris as the instruments of American carnage and anarchy, um, given that the main reason why the left dislikes her is her law and order record. And the other thing that I would just say is a matter of style and campaigning, it felt to me like, and as I've watched Harris, and you tell me if you think I'm completely off about this, when she's trying to lead, she doesn't do that well. Like, and one of the reasons why she flamed out in the primary is she didn't really know, she was trying to put both feet in the mainstream of the party, but she didn't really know where that was. And so she was kind of weaving and bobbing on healthcare and weaving and bobbing on a lot of things. So, but if she's sort of like representing a client, like the Biden campaign or knows where she needs to stand, she can be a pretty effective advocate and prosecutor of her position. And so if her position is, I'm the, I'm to prosecute the case against the Trump record, eh, she can be pretty effective at that. Yeah, I expect that's right. I mean, the, her, I think I think her advisors and and, and ultimately she uh, had a really hard time um, navigating the primary, partly because of the exact thing I was talking about. I think that that is a campaign that just misread where the center of the Democratic Party is mm-hmm. based on being way too online. Yeah. And uh, you saw that with uh, the you know what seemed at first like a pretty effective, at least an effectively delivered attack. Uh, over Biden's record from the 1970s on busing, but there was just an obvious follow-up that she was incapable of answering. And that pattern sort of repeated a couple times, healthcare being another place where she Mm -hmm. couldn't really master the issue that she was using. Um, But I think for various reasons, uh, the press is probably not going to be asking the same kinds of pointed questions if she's attacking Mike Pence as when she was attacking Joe Biden. And because, you know, frankly, she's had a much longer time to mm-hmm. be on top of the critique of Republicans and of Trump than of intra-democratic fights. Yeah. I mean, but at the end of the day, it just, and, you know, transitioning from Kamala to 2020 in general, you know, Everything about 2020 as of this moment is feeling like a referendum on Trump. Much, much more than a judgment on the Democratic ticket. I mean, that's, and that's where I, I, that seems to me to be the dynamic that has been unfolding for a while and will continue to unfold barring dramatically unforeseen events. And you're a much more astute uh, practitioner of the dark arts of punditry than I am. So, Am I off base on that? Is this just where well, that, we're that is, that is that is a great uh, use of the art of the disguised put down, David. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I would say that sort of the classic um, view uh, was that presidential elections in which there's an incumbent are referenda on that incumbent. So 1980, mm-hmm. Carter fails the referendum. 1984, mm-hmm. Reagan passes it. Um, I think that that's actually become less true over time in a polarized mm-hmm. country. Um, you don't have the kind of massive swings 
um, based on the incumbent's actual performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got pretty strong bases on both sides, and so there's there's a pretty I mean, landslides aren't what they used to be. You've got a, a pretty low ceiling and a high floor mm-hmm. for each party. Um, that said, I think it makes a lot of sense for an incumbent to make it a choice election if possible. That's what George W. Bush did in 2004. That's what Barack Obama did in 2012. It's what Trump is doing to some extent mm-hmm. this year, but it's always running into the problem, which is that he wants to make everything about himself. And so a kind of referendum election kind of suits his personality. Right. Um, uh, but fundamentally, it's 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 not working because so much of politics has has revolved around him. Uh, it's always seemed to me that the real purpose of the presidency for him was to make every conversation in America about him and mm-hmm. that he succeeded to uh, an alarming degree uh, in that ambition. Uh, but now I think it's hurting. Yeah, yeah, I talked to I, a I talked to a Republican strategist a couple of uh, about a month ago. I said, you know, if he were a competent narcissist, he'd have <laughs> a real chance in this election. Or if he were incompetent but kind of a likable guy that people were inclined to forgive, um, but uh, incompetent narcissist is is uh, is a hard sell. And right. And that, I think, is is basically what's putting him in the hole right now. But, you know, I think you raise a really good point about the polarization, because if you look, um, if you know, 538, the website has a, a lot of great statistical tools. And one of them is you can see the Trump approval rating and then contrast it with the approval ratings of other presidents going back, you know, Nixon um, and I believe even before Nixon. But uh and what, what strikes me about the Trump approval rating is its remarkable stability. I mean, just remarkable stability. When we were at, um, with strong economic growth, low unemployment, relative peace, he had a low approval rating, but not re- stunningly low, you know, 42, 43, 44. And now we are in an economic recession with a pandemic and urban unrest and a a huge amount of national angst with even Republicans expressing profound dissatisfaction with the state of the country. And he's basically at the same approval rating. It, and no other president has been like that. Obama was, you began to see some of the stabilization of the approval rating with Obama, but even he had a lot more variability. I mean, is this just the new reality at this point? I mean, is it, are is we're all at this point where, no ma- almost no matter who you are and what you do, you're going to have that high floor and you're going to have that low ceiling? I suspect that that is true. Um, it may be that Trump's an exaggerated version of that, mm-hmm. uh, as he's an exaggerated version of a lot yeah. of things, but, and that you know Biden wins, um, that, that he oscillates more. Um, but I, my, I suspect he will not have the highs and lows of Obama, who himself didn't have the highs and lows of George W. Bush, right? right. I mean, remember George W. Bush was at about 90 right after September 11th mm-hmm. and then basically fell for the rest of his presidency with the exception of the few months around um, the nomination of John Kerry. Um, and I think uh, if I remember correctly, he was in the high 20s when he left office. And I don't think Trump is yeah. going to be uh, as ever going to get down that far. Uh, well, you know, so that that that's going to get us to a question. Um, does Trump, if Trump loses, because things, you know, this is not a foregone conclusion, always going to say that, even though, you know, the, the polling looks grim for him. If Trump loses, does the bloom come off the rose with the 40% uh, with him? Does, do, do you reach a point where he becomes as unpopular of a losing presidential candidate as Mitt Romney was, as H, George H.W. Bush was, as Jimmy Carter was? Or do you think he retains a hold that those guys were never able to retain over their parties? Hmm. Well, if you think of um, the previous presidents who lost re-election, mm-hmm. um, they tend to, to have a pretty bad reputation in a little sway with their parties. So yeah. Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. George H.W. Bush. Now, George H.W. Bush and Carter both recover in terms of their personal um, approval 
um, they're they're thought of as good men, mm-hmm. but they're not seen as sort of the direction uh, that the party needs to follow. Um, but of course, previous presidents who lost sort of slunk away, and yeah. <laughs> Trump, you know, isn't going to do that. So, I mean, it's a big question. I I think the answer is going to be that uh, that some of that forty percent peels away, maybe mm-hmm. ten, maybe right. twenty, but. You know the exact percentage is going to matter a great deal for the future of the party, and it's just hard to know in advance. Um, you know, does he get branded as a loser? Does he get branded as um, somebody who had the election stolen from him? Which is certainly the way that he it would portray it if it if if he in fact ends up losing. Um, you know, I've been sort of. I've been in the more optimistic camp on this, but there's just a big question we don't know the answer to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I in my own view, just again, this is purely hypothetical, is there's a giant difference between a narrow loss and a big loss. for the, And not just for the perception of Donald Trump, but for the future of the Republican Party. A narrow loss, you've got the argument that this was taken, this was an artifact of the pandemic, this was a result of the Russia hoax, of the nonstop hatred of the media. This was never Trump. Well, it was, it was you. It was me. It was yeah. us. Ramesh, it was us. Um, never Trump stabbed him in the back. So, you know, at that point, it's it's seems like the strongest argument would be, okay, right message, sort of this pugilistic populism, maybe wrong, maybe suboptimal messenger. So you turn to if not Don Jr., but you maybe Tucker or somebody else who's sort of more pugilistic and populist. But a big loss seems to me to just open up the wor- to a world of internecine carnage <laughs> on the right. Well, I guess, you know, look, I mean, I think that that is broadly correct. And with, with a big loss being defined both in terms of the electoral vote and the popular vote on the one side, but also just how bad the down ballot losses yeah. are. Um, but I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't discount the possibility that the um, party concludes or large parts of it, you know, the pandemic was kind of an act of God and nobody Mm -hmm. could have, uh, you know, that it was just really bad luck on Trump's part. It wasn't his fault. That's possible. I mean, again, I'm not saying that will happen, but I could see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I was, not that old when Carter lost. So I think I'm older than you, Ramesh. Um, I'm always the oldest person on every podcast. But so I was born in 69. So I was uh, almost 12. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm old Gen X, just to be clear. There's no boomer that my parents, no, my parents are older than boomers. Darn it. Well, but I am, I'm Gen X anyway. You know, I can you know, you're young teen starting to get really nerdily obsessed with politics. That's when I started reading National Review. Um, I don't remember people, you know, you remember with Democrats kind of a feeling about Jimmy Carter, like, let's not do that again. But then at the same time, they ran his VP in 84. Um, but they so had to I lose would, three times, right, <laughs> to, yeah. to really get it drummed into them that they had to change. And that's the last time that they have moved right in some ways, really. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, and that's why they haven't since then. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so it was as if they kind of, they absorbed this huge loss, but didn't learn significant, as you said, didn't learn significant lessons or, or the other alternative explanation is that the consequences of the Carter presidency were so profound that the public didn't want to give the Democrats the reins back until after the cold war was over. Um, yeah, the Cold War needed to. I mean, it was a combination of the right is sort of the the failure of the Carter administration and then the success mm-hmm. of the Reagan administration. Um, people were were broadly happy with how they were being governed in the late nineteen yeah. by the late nineteen eighties, um, and really for kind of a sustained period of time. Yeah, yeah. Until it, you know what, in hindsight, is a very mild recession. <laughs> in the Bush, in the Bush administration, quite mild, but that, that was, um, but so then, you know, with HW, in spite of the fact that he was a quite honorable guy, um, gosh, I mean, a biography that really few presidents have had Republicans for a long time were like, let's not do that again (laughs) with that kind of style. 
But then oddly enough, like we went from Carter to Mondale, from Carter to Mondale, you went from Bush to Bush. And so it, on the one hand, Bush kind of did slink away, but his name was still potent enough to have the next Republican president be his son. So it's, yeah, but, but, but George Bush had here. to present himself as kind of Reagan's son more than yeah. his own father's son in that primary race. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. So you and I have both been involved in the burn it down wars, um, which that's a sort of a generous way of describing one of the more polite Twitter fights that you'll ever see um, in competing pieces about should should the Republican Party be sort of torched and if not with the earth salted so that it cannot rise but at least at the very least raised down to the rubble um and you and i have been on the same side of this that that's unnecessary and counterproductive um and i i want to read to you something that andrew sullivan wrote in the dish and which i broadly agree with so um so first he he talks about a damon linker piece in the week where uh, Linker says he has a pretty negative view of Republican voters. Um, He says, Republican voters, most of whom, quote, remain undaunted in their conviction that politics is primarily about the venting of grievances and the trolling of opponents, the dumber and angrier and more shameless, the better. It's a pretty negative view of voters. And then he says, this is... uh, Sullivan uh, summarizing it, the paranoid pugilistic subculture underpins much of the party today is uninterested in reason or the compromises necessary to move the country in any positive direction. And while he says Linker has no idea how to change the subculture, this is Sullivan. I do leadership. Look at how easy it was for Trump to shift the party by force of his personality. I see no reason why someone else couldn't shift it yet again, not necessarily back to pre-Trump, but forward to a new fusion of nationalist realism, populist economics, and cultural conservatism. In other words, his view is what ails the party is it's just got, its, its leader is bad. And a new leader will, can transform the party without having to destroy the party. What, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I don't think that what's wrong with, well, first of all, I, I think that there, we could use more reason and willingness to compromise uh, <laughs> across the board, not just in uh, uh, one party. Um, I, I don't think that the problem is purely a leadership problem. I think that there mm-hmm. there are some some let's say cultural pathologies um, that have grown on the right um, over the years. I mean, some that are affect our entire political culture, but some mm-hmm. that are are specific to the right. Um, but I do think that it is a mistake to think that sort of everything that all the worst features of Trump are sort of the essence of the Republican Party mm-hmm. and will be forevermore. And it's sort of its true nature has been revealed. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, to the extent that that's true, that's not it's it doesn't bolster the argument that in my own writing on Burn It Down, I've been most focused on, which is this idea, we've got to destroy the party to build something better in its place. I mean, if that argument's true, it just means that the right half of America's electorate is irredeemably corrupt and you've just, right. you know, you've got to become a Democrat. Or if yeah. the Democrats are unacceptable as well, then, you know, you just got to kind of retire or detach yourself somehow um, <laughs> from politics. Now, I mean, you know, we can have that argument as to whether that's whether that stuff is true or not. But I, but I think the basic point that Trump changed the party um, and if a, a party can change that rapidly, maybe it can change that rapidly again. You know, I, I do think there's a lot to that. Let me think about George W. Bush and compassionate conservatism. Mm-hmm. George W. Bush had a uh, stronger share, you know, bigger share of the national popular vote than mm-hmm. Trump has ever gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, he had more buy-in from Republican Party elites up and down the party. And... It, he vanished without a trace, right? I mean, compassion mm-hmm. conservatism was just gone as soon as he left the White House. Right. Um, and it doesn't strike me as as obvious that we can't do the same thing. Um, that doesn't mean you go back to the pre-Trump party, just as you didn't go right back to the late 1990s. 
Republican Party after George W. Bush. But it does mean, I think, that, that there's a lot of plasticity to these things. Well, yeah, I mean, you you have George W. Bush sort of who was far more electorally successful than than Trump uh, goes away. But then there's the dramatic change in the Republican Party party from the party of Nixon to the party of Reagan. Right. Well, that's also true. And I mean, so you also get this argument that, you know, Trump will stay in the party forever. Well, I mean, you know, Nixon leaves and um, six years later, uh, Republicans win the White House, have their first Senate majority since the 1950s, get a working majority uh, in the House. Um, you know, people, a lot of voters, you know, those voters in the middle who are still there, um, even if in smaller numbers, they'll tend to be pretty forgiving of people and won't say, well, what did you say about the last guy? And, you know, why didn't you stand up against him? It's just, you know, I mean, pe- you know, people in our space may mm-hmm. obsess about that kind of question, but, but practical minded voters just basically don't. And I, I also think that we are in the middle of a real Twitter distortion effect about what the average voter is like, or, you know, what the average yeah. partisan voter is like. Right. And, if you are a journalist living in a in a blue area, you're unless you're intentionally getting out there, your exposure to a Trump supporter is primarily going to be through Twitter. And that is not a representative like from living in red, red America and, you know, going to conservative evangelical church. Trump Twitter is not representative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, also, you know, I mean, that gets back to Damon Linker's, I think it was a Damon Linker quote, not an mm-hmm. Andrew Sullivan quote about how, you know, Republican voters just are in it for trolling and owning the libs. Mm-hmm. So, but look, that's, just, that's a, there's a real phenomenon. I don't want to yeah. pretend it's not a real phenomenon. Yeah. It is real. But, uh, but I think one thing, I think people have just um, uh, weirdly discounted the fundamental reason why most Republican voters have stuck with Trump. And it's, and it's not a difficult question. It is that Trump agrees or professes to agree with Republicans on the issues that most Republican voters care most about, and the Democrats are on the other side. I mean, it is really that simple. So maybe Trump could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, but Trump knows, or the people around him know, he can't sign a big gun control bill. He's got to stand for life. He can't raise taxes. And, you know, look, the idea that you should you should support him because you're with him on these issues and the other side's against you, it's not a crazy idea. It's totally, it's a reasonable idea. It's not fundamentally one at the end of the day that is decisive for me. It is not, it did not convince me to vote for him last time. It mm-hmm. is not going to convince me to vote for him this time. But it's it's not like you require some some special, like supernatural explanation um, for why in a time of party polarization um, with divisions on all of these issues, people would back him. Well, and there's another element to this, I think, that distinguishes a lot of the the rank and file Trump voters, the millions upon millions upon millions of rank and file Trump voters from sort of the pro-Trump pugilists you see on Twitter. It's, It's twofold. On the one hand, it is, yeah, I'm pro-life. He's done, he's enacted pro-life policies. I'm for, I support the second amendment. He's protecting against gun control. That's very, very simple. And then the other thing is they don't have the same information regarding Trump's flaws. They, they, I think a lot of people have this this misimpression that Republicans are vacuuming in all of the information about Donald Trump. They are understanding that he's done A and B and C and D and E and F, and all of those things have been bad. They they dissect uh, a lot of the, you know, they're fully aware of all the things he said on Twitter and fully aware of all the ins and outs of Russia and Ukraine and support him anyway. When the reality is, almost every Trump voter I talk to, their knowledge of, say, Trump scandals or Trump behavior that's negative is really dramatically more limited than people think. Um, and so they're not sitting there making a, a judgment that says, I fully understand Trump's character and behavior, but I'm choosing to support him anyway. It is much more of, well, he, you know, he just doesn't talk the way I'd like him to talk. And his Twitter feed's a little out of control. As an uh, elder in a church I talked to said, he's a little bit of an alley cat. 
is it's so sort of this uh, he's like the lovable rogue and i i just think people underestimate the the knowledge gap that is out there between sort of the pundit class about what trump has done and 50 million of his voters yeah well i mean i think i think most people are certainly not paying you know, close attention to day-to-day politics. That's always mm-hmm. true. It's probably a little bit more true than it used to be. And uh, there's a much more sort of impressionistic um, uh, idea of, uh, of Trump. I mean, I do think that, that you know, the impressions tend to be based on truth. Mm-hmm. And as time goes by, it's, you know, people have gotten a, a better and better look. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I also do, I also think that some, Sometimes, you know, you've for understandable, reasonable reasons, you've voted for the guy, and then you sort of want to stop hearing negative stuff about him Mm -hmm. because of the choice that you've already made. That was one of the reasons why I didn't want, I I thought it was, it would be a mistake for, for people to, um, rationalize or to, 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 to vote for him, even with all their reservations, because I thought over time, uh, it would just be too tempting to get over the reservations and yeah. try to screen them out and not listen to people who keep harping on his flaws, even though he sort of reveals those flaws each and every day, several times. Um, so I think that, you know, to some extent you hear people saying things like, oh, well, so you just have a problem with this Twitter feed or, you know, you have an aesthetic objection. I mean, the idea that at this point, the objection to him is sort of just aesthetic like it's like just man or like he's using the wrong fork at the table i mean that's totally (laughs) absurd all right that's that is that's a way of kind of deflecting yeah oh of course i mean and and it's especially you know when you're talking with people who pay close attention to politics and participate in political discourse when you have someone sort of wave away his flaws as if it's summed up in his twitter feed you almost at this point think this person's not even not even dealing in good faith in the conversation well, you know, the other, thing, the other thing is like there's been such a fire hose of yeah. of information and analysis and crazy Trump stories over the few years that even political junkies can lose track of things and have to be reminded of something that happened, you know, two weeks ago in yeah. a way that uh, that really wasn't the case for previous administrations I've written about. Yeah, I, you know, when I look at sort of the the responsibility for Trumpism. And this is, again, going back to some of the burn it down stuff. There's a lot of fury at these GOP elected officials who were elected before Trump, who've really kind of struggled to find their footing in the age of Trump. Um, To greater or lesser degrees, sometimes they kind of stay quiet and muddle through. Some jump on the Trump train and try to imitate him. Some very, a smaller number are to a greater or lesser degree resistant. They're not the instruments of Trumpism. Um, I. It's much more a combination of Trump the man and a slice of conservative media that if I'm a rank-and-file normal Republican and I have grown up trusting Fox News um, and I've grown up sort of trusting talk radio, how do I know what Trump is actually like, honestly? Like, yeah, I know he's got a wild Twitter feed, but I, what I know more is that he was lied about by the media. This is a lie. 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 And, you know, that's one of the things when I talk to folks, there's just a completely different information silo that they're yeah. in. Right. Yeah. They're so unfair to him. And so, but, you know, I suspect it's still the case. I haven't looked at this polling in a while. Um, but the you know if you ask people like is he a personally admirable person um yeah. you know do you consider him honest trustworthy does he share your values those numbers are really really bad mm-hmm. they've been consistently bad and they suggest and and while it is true that most republicans have been willing to say things like he does share my values yeah and he is honest and i would trust him as a babysitter and you know <laughs> uh i let him manage my accounts and all that stuff um even a significant percentage of Republicans aren't willing to say that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't, I, there's, there are bubbles, but the, there are degrees of permeability too. Well, right. I mean, even the elder who called him an alley cat and even calling him an alley cat with sort of a hint of affection 
he wasn't saying that I'd want my son to be an alley cat, you know, or I want my pastor to be that kind of alley cat. But it's sort of like, yeah, he, he is a rogue. He's our rogue. Um, but again, a lot you of know, this- the other thing that strikes me, and this is it's just like everybody, like it includes mm-hmm. Kaylee McEnany. Whenever there's some allegation of some horrifying thing that Trump has done, you'll get um, in some cases, you'll get a denial and you'll get this weird mm-hmm. two tiered thing where some people are saying, well, it would have been perfectly fine if he did that <laughs> or it was perfectly fine that he did that. But also, oh, he didn't do that at all. Um, but what you never get from any of these, stuff, well, no, of course, Trump wouldn't do that. That's totally unlike him to, you know, to put himself above the country. And, you know, just you never mm-hmm. get that. Yeah. Yeah. That we, well, yeah, that, that's, there, that's there's that's some right. defenses that even this white house doesn't try. Yeah, that's true. And you hit on something I think that's really important about human nature. And, and that is if you vote for somebody, you know, there's all, all of this talk in 2016 about, well, I'm just going to vote for the lesser evil, but voting for somebody is, it, I think for the vast majority of people, it's not as if, okay, I cast a vote, and now I'm blank slate. I'm going to call balls and strikes for, as a completely unbiased observer of American politics. In this one moment, I chose the lesser of evil, but I'm going to hold his feet to the fire. The reality is casting a vote sort of is, a, it's like signing up for a team. It's saying, I, it's like, you know, going to the little league signups and saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on the team sponsored by, uh, you know, Trump, by, by uh, Donald Trump. And we don't like to live life as the lesser evil. Like you don't want to say, hey, I'm team lesser evil. You want to feel like you're on team good. And, and, I, and I feel like that's such a powerful source of rationalization of Trump because you've signed up for this team. You don't want to live your life thinking I'm always the lesser evil. You want to live your life thinking I'm on a team, I'm on a side that's actually good. And that, that's such a powerful, in my view, that's such a powerful force of rationalization. You're going to want to find the best in any given circumstance. Well, or, you know, you'll want to, you'll, you'll find, you know, there'll be 10 criticisms and you'll find the two that are mm-hmm. overwrought, right? Yeah. <laughs> that are, yeah. in, in fact, in many cases, maybe it's six of the 10 that are overwrought yeah. and, and, and say, well, that's ridiculous. So then just sort of shut your mind to the true critique. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think there's, there's a lot in that. Although I kind of like the idea of getting a team lesser evil t-shirt. <laughs> I know. Hard to feel great about yourself, but you know, maybe you feel not quite as bad about yourself as the other team. Yeah. I mean, and the thing, and look, of course, I mean, the thing about a lot of these arguments, um, a lot of the arguments that we faced in 2016 from our friends on the right who were supporting mm-hmm. Trump is, I mean, they're not baseless. Um, mm-hmm. There are elements of truth. And, you know, if two candidates pass threshold tests of acceptability, you know, de- fitness for office, decency, mm-hmm. and so forth, then, yeah, that you are weighing up um, virtues and flaws and mm-hmm. figuring out where the balance comes out better. Um, it's ju- I, I think it is a mistake to think that that's all a choice in an election right. uh, amounts to. Um, because I do think there is such a thing as that threshold test. Yeah, I, I think that's a a big difference between, where say you and I think about the voting process. Where some other some other folks, it's there is no threshold. There are just these two candidates, and you choose these two candidates. There, one, the threshold is they're on the ballot, <laughs> and if they're on the ballot, I got to choose. And it's almost in, in some, I, I keep getting this argument. It's just ir- irresponsible. It's civically irresponsible right. not to make that choice between those two. Whereas I have this, which view- I think is kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird argument when you unpack mm-hmm. it, right? Because, mm-hmm. because what they want you to do, the people who want to say, you know, like the Trumpers did and some of the Clinton people in uh, 2016, uh, it's a binary choice. There only one of these people is going to be president. They're, you know, you're getting the same mm-hmm. sorts of arguments now, uh, again, from both sides. Um, they want you to put yourself in this contrived position where the choice comes down to you. You're the decisive mm-hmm. vote, you know, even though you in Tennessee and I in Virginia are not by any yeah. means going to affect yeah. the outcome of those states. Exactly. Um, you're the decisive vote, but at the same time, 
you don't have the power to choose somebody else, right? I mm-hmm. mean, my write-in of, of Nancy French is not going to make her present. Why do I have to abide by this weird thought experiment in casting my vote? Right, exactly. And why, why, am I, why can I not take a position that says, you, candidate, have to earn my vote? Or why can I not take a position that my vote matters, not just for this particular election, but it sends a message for the future as well. So for example, if there is a gap between there are more votes for Republican senator than there are votes for a Republican president, that can mean that there is an argument for a kind of Republican party, a kind of Republican party personified by this senator that I prefer to the kind of Republican party personified by this president. I mean, there, there are more, there's more than one message that is sent by a vote. Um, and yeah, but it, a lot of this is, it It really is deeply grounded. And in, in when I talk, especially to evangelical audiences, it has been drilled in from day one that you have to cast a vote for one of these two candidates. And also that the, the basic choice is going to be between pro-life and pro-choice. And that's going to be the controlling determination. And if somebody is pro-life, then by definition, they're going to meet the character test. That the character test is the policy test. Now, that's kind of new. That's not always been the case, especially if you read a lot of the statements in the 1990s. But that seems to be the case now. I had a debate with Eric Metaxas, and I was talking about how Christians have a cultural role in participation in politics. That in our participation in politics, we're to be salt and light. And a critic of my, uh, somebody who's evaluating the debate said, what David misses is that many Christian voters think the entire, the entire process of being salt and light is expressed by whether you're pro-life or pro-religious liberty. And I think that has become kind of an, uh, an, uh, an evangelical conservative position. Right. So the character questions as previously understood have just fallen out altogether. Yeah. And the, you know what? The positions matter. Positions they are, do matter. And the positions are fundamentally, you know, I'm actually not a great fan of, of Joe Biden's character either. Right. Um, but but it's the it's the positions that he's taken that that are disqualifying for my vote. Um, it's but I, I think that we have seen um, that the presidential, you know, what goes into the job of being president is more than just the collection of positions. I mean, I think that that is. Um, one of the reasons that the, the pandemic has been so um, devastating for Trump's reelection chances is because all of these uh, character flaws, including, as, as you pointed out, competence, right. are crucial to doing the job and voters evaluate you on it and should. Yeah. Can you res- can you respond and react rationally to data like <laughs> that? Is- yeah, well, do you have self-control or are you? Yeah. Impulsive? You know, yeah. you have a, you know, like all politicians stretch the truth and lie, but, you know, is there some sort of bedrock basic honesty that that at least is a departure from, um, you know, and, and Trump just, he just fails each and every one of those tests. I mean, there even are, like, the there are character tests that we wouldn't, you know, we talk a lot about Trump breaking norms, mm-hmm. but so many of those norms were never articulated. Um, let alone codified, because we never imagined that they would be necessary. We didn't. It's not like we had a norm in 2013 that the president of the United States doesn't comment on some television personality's facelift, right? <laughs> I mean, like, that's right. just uh, would kind of went without saying. Yeah, or the president of the United States doesn't uh, accuse pres uh, without evidence accuse television personalities of murder. Like that. That's that's a norm. Yeah. that we didn't yeah. know about. Um, or yeah. can the president accurately read a teleprompter on an incredibly vital public address regarding an emerging pandemic? I mean, that's not something that we thought hard about before. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I also think, you know, I mean, that actually goes to another character issue because I've kind of buy the theory that he needs glasses, but he's too vain mm-hmm. to, uh, to put them on. <laughs> and so and that helps explain the teleprompter flub. Let's take a moment and uh, thank our sponsor, the Bradley Speaker Series and the Bradley Foundation. 
Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org backslash liberty to watch our most recent episode featuring a renowned scholar, Robert P. George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. George is a 2005 winner of the Bradley Prize and a member of the Bradley Foundation's Board of Directors. In this episode, he makes the case against judging historical figures by present standards and for telling the truth about America's history, protecting the integrity of the institutions of civil society, and being more understanding of those who have perspectives different from our own. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to our YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new video is posted. Yeah, so well, let's let's uh, move on because you have been for a long time an eloquent, um, and you've been an eloquent advocate of the idea that the Republican Party really needs to connect with, uh, you know, middle class voters in a different and better way, and. And so there is going to be a post-Trump GOP pulling some of the lessons that you've learned from, you know, watching the rise of Trump and some of the ideological back and forth. Um, what do you think the, the best, let, let's assume the next Republican who steps forward, let's be optimistic and assume the next Republican who steps forward to lead is high integrity, highly intelligent, well read up on policy and also charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> what does that highly intelligent, honorable, charismatic Republican, what is he, what is his ideology and policy what, that, that you would like to see or that you would think would be most effective at building a Republican majority? So um, I think that this notional future Republican Party mm -hmm. uh, should be traditionalist on morals and support mm -hmm. the right to life and uh, religious mm -hmm. liberty um, and the family. Uh, and a thriving marriage culture. Um, it should be for free markets and decentralization and federalism. And it should be for the prudent pursuit of uh, the national interest overseas. It should be, it should be in some sense nationalistic, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, as opposed to, say, subordinating U.S. interests to sort of the needs of a global community or, or, or something like that. And I think that that is that's not only what I want. I think that's actually what any right of center coalition right. that is anything close to competitive is inevitably going to be. So the question is sort of how do you take those dispositions and translate them into a an agenda that addresses the concerns that face America right now? Mm -hmm. And you know who knows what things are going to look like in 2024 or um, 2028. Uh, but my my thought is that the pre-Trump party had a kind of ossified agenda inherited from Reagan that spoke to mm -hmm. that time, and we needed to come up with a new way to uh, uh, to meet the needs of our time. And Trump, to some extent, you know, his success reflected how outdated that previous agenda was, like the, mm -hmm. the obsession, for example, with the top marginal tax rate. Now, unfortunately, Trump didn't replace the old agenda with anything new that I think makes a lot of sense and has in some ways paralyzed the debate over mm -hmm. what the next agenda ought to look like because everything just ends up being sucked into the vortex of uh, his personality and the argument about mm -hmm. his personality. Um, but it seems to me that there are a lot of places where uh, conservative reforms could be deployed to reduce the cost of living for middle-class right. families. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there, there's a lot of, to be done on housing mm -hmm. and higher education. And yes, although it is tricky healthcare, these are all areas which have an enormous effect on people's budgets, enormous effect mm -hmm. on national life. And they largely reflect policies that uh, conservatives didn't have much of a hand in creating. Uh, and, uh, you know, that our principles sort of should go against. Right. So I think there's a lot we could do um, in those areas, um, but there's also other areas too. I mean, I've also been 
an advocate of pro-family tax relief, the idea that our tax code needs to um, be more supportive of parents than it is. Um, you know, Trump sometimes talked about having the Republicans being a workers' party. I'd be kind of mm-hmm. I'd I'd want it to be a parents' party actually mm-hmm. even more than I'd want it to, to be that. Um, I think that there that a post-Trump party, whether we get it twenty twenty one or twenty twenty five, the odds are it's going to be there's going to be a lot that's up for grabs uh, because we'll have seen that um, that there is malleability to what the party stands for, right. um, but there are also certain red lines and and certain dispositions that uh, Republican and conservative voters have. Um, so it could potentially be a very exciting time. Of course, one could argue we've had enough excitement. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's such a thing as good excitement. Uh, I, it's hard to remember that. It's hard to remember there's such a thing as good excitement. Well, so here's here's a question that is really interesting to me, because I do think that some of the, the populists uh, are on to something important when they say that a multi-ethnic working class coalition has real e- electoral force. Although I, I actually prefer your your parents' coalition, but it would also have to be multi-ethnic. I mean, uh, you know, uh, for the GOP going forward, look, the, the, the pure demographic fatalism of like the emerging democratic majority has been proven to be uh, at the very least premature in its triumphalism about the, the, about the, Democrat, uh, about the d- fortunes of the Democrats. But it is just kind of the case if you're going to win consistently in the national stage, you're going to have to be more and more and more multi-ethnic. Um, yeah, and- that's that, that's right. Um, and these things are related, right? So, so to the extent the Republican Party works to be seen less as representing the interests of big business and rich people mm-hmm. um, almost exclusively, and, and Trump has done a little bit of that, but hasn't in some ways, right? He's talking about an executive order on capital gains taxes, um, again, for example. Um so to the extent that that happens, you might find yourself making some inroads among Hispanics and blacks, um, you know, both groups that have median incomes lower than the national median, um, for example, so that like, you know, you can be as, as racially inclusive uh, as possible. And if, if people still think of you as the party of rich people, um, you're going to underperform in those right. groups. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not an either-or thing, right? I mean, there was a lot of crazy discussion in 2012 onwards about, like, you know, you've got to get 40% of the non-white vote, which turned out not to be true. Um, you know, typically a party that that gains is going to gain across the board, but maybe, you know, disproportionately do well, uh, bounce a little bit higher with some groups than others. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that if you had a... Um, a more sort of up-to-date conservative agenda. Uh, you could see some, you could maybe hold some of the gains among um, work, working class white voters or white voters without college degrees at least, um, and also start seeing some gains with other groups. Um, so it's not an either-or thing. I do think that, the, that there, are, uh, there are some issues uh, around race um, that the Republican Party also has to deal with, and they're slightly different for different groups, right? I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a kind of religious problem um, that uh, impedes Republican success with Asian Americans, for example. Mm, a that's not the problem. same thing as as the as the problem that Amer- that Republicans have with African Americans or with mm-hmm. Hispanics. You know, I, it's it's interesting. I think that so the speaking as a lifelong Southern. Well, I've lived in the Northeast many years, but the vast majority of my life has been in the South, lifelong Southern uh, conservative. There's kind of a, a truism. The more that conservatism in the South veers towards Main Street and business interests, the less it is racial, it is based on racial identity. The more conservative in the South veers towards just plain old populism, the more it is steeped in a lot of the history, the nasty history of the region. And so I feel like there is a there is a populist problem, and I have, I've tried to put it like this: that white Southern working class populism has been traditionally interlinked to a large degree with racism. 
It just has been. And a party that turns its back on sort of the Main Street business-friendly conservatism that has pushed back against a lot of that and very intentionally tried to turn the page on a lot of that, that if you're going to be dismissing that kind of conservatism, that more business-minded conservatism, you're going to be left with a coalition that isn't necessarily interested in the multi-ethnic working class um, alliance. And in fact, rejects sort of the multi-ethnic coalitional instinct. And I, and I think that that is, and a lot of people don't want to think of it in those terms, but I do think that that is a problem that the GOP has right now. If it, if it doubles down on populism, especially white working class populism, you're connecting to a lot of deep historical problems there. Well, um, I think that there's something to that, but it's also true that uh, a kind of excessive business orientation can breed a populist yeah. reaction. That's true. Uh, too, and yeah. vice versa, they kind of feed mm -hmm. on each other. And I mean, to, to be obviously kind of somewhat schematic about this, the Republican Party is and will continue to be a coalition between mm -hmm. these white working class cultural conservatives, um, business oriented moderates, and ideological conservatives. Mm -hmm. And that is going to always be a problem of managing that coalition. And the balance has shifted, right? I mean, the, the white working class cultural conservative percentage of the party has grown and it's become a little bit more, it's become a lot more self-conscious as a faction of the party. Um, but it just, it's, it seems to me you cannot build a successful party uh, or right of center mass political movement that has any chance of success unless you've incorporated all of those groups. And in fact, even if you add all three of them, you, you're going to have to get a little bit more in order to get a majority. Right, right. Oh, and I think there's no question that sort of the main, the, the exclusive focus on business and Main Street has been a reason why a lot of cultural conservatives have felt alienated from the party. That, uh, for example, in some of the state religious liberty battles, it has been sort of the Main Street Republicans that have bailed very quickly in the face of woke corporate pressure that wrongly bailed. Um, I mean, I, I remember being very frustrated at Pence's quick climb down in 2015 in Indiana over the Indiana Riffra battle. So there is there is this, an element in which that ex sort of exclusive business focus has or dominant business focus has created a breach with cultural conservatives. And and look. White working class populism in the South is not the white working class populism of 1960. <laughs> it's not. Uh, so we can't like draw this complete straight sure. line. But, but I've seen enough of it to know that at the very least, what you're often dealing with is just uh, a total indifference to racial outreach. It's sort of maybe perhaps the uh, one way of describing it, a, just a total indifference to it and often a, a instinctive rebellion against the idea that there's any sort of racial problem within the GOP, co GOP coalition at all. And I feel like right. that's a barrier. But it's also coupled with the idea, look, our, you know, we're hurting. Our community is mm -hmm. hurting. Yep. And a lot of people who talk a great game about diversity are not interested in helping us at all, right? Yeah. So, and that's not that's not baseless. It doesn't mean that they're totally right about that. It doesn't mean that that's an actually a good argument for not wanting to do things about racial justice or for not wanting the Republican Party to change if, if it's in the context of an intra-Republican argument. But again, you know, there's there's something there, and that's at least a trap to be avoided. Right. And I mean, in arguments about white privilege ring hollow to people, say, who are, you know, a department manager at a Walmart or, you know, managing a Burger King. I mean, that's not, you know, that's a, a more or less middle class life, but you're not exactly like feeling like you're loaded down with privilege. And those arguments, which, you know, are often hi hyper concentrated in elite circles, but echo around the rest of the uh, United States. I mean, I, those are also things that just don't resonate with people as well. Um, right, and you feel, you know, sometimes disrespected as well. Like, yeah, yeah, like you haven't accomplished what you've worked hard to accomplish, <laughs> that it's been given to you. Uh, but I do think, and uh, well, you know, let's we'll sort of ease out of the wonker here in a minute. 
I do think that there is some ideological conservative, there is a potential, and you tell me if you think I'm just, I've lost my mind, for uh, some of the much despised libertarian side of the, uh, of the um, conservative coalition, or recently much despised libertarian side, to actually be able to make some inroads into building a more multi-ethnic coalition through civil liberties and mass incarceration. There is a natural alliance, it seems to me, that's outlying out there between civil libertarians who value, say, amendments four through eight of the Bill of Rights as much as they value amendments one and two, who are, and who also see the, the devastating effects on, for example, economic opportunity and family for, formation of mass incarceration, to make some real and potent inroads in building bridges with, um, you know, communities that are disproportionately affected by those very same phenomenon. And I, I just feel like the Republicans left something on the table when they do things like instinctively back things like qualified immunity, for example, or, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's just too esoteric and, and too technical, but I feel like there is a natural al alliance around civil liberties that can emerge and inroads that can be made surrounding civil liberties that can emerge, uh, in an alliance with, groups who are seeking to, you know, deal with real social injustice, uh, you know, around the issues of police brutality and mass incarceration. Am I wildly optimistic? I think that is over-optimistic. Um, <laughs> oh, look, great. I mean, I, I, I think that um, the argument for getting rid of qualified immunity is, uh, is pretty strong. I haven't delved into it as much as you have, but I have followed it somewhat and, and I, I'm convinced it's right. Well, it's the right thing to do, so let's be for it. Um, but I don't see how it particularly helps Republicans because, you know, I don't see there's anything there that Republicans or conservatives can do or stand for that liberals and Democrats can't. Right. Uh, and so it just, you know, it doesn't it's it doesn't become a selling proposition for the right. Um, you know, again, doesn't mean we can't do it. Doesn't mean we can't have successful bipartisan initiatives on on things like that. Um, but it just seems to me like these are the sorts of criminal justice I sort of slot in the same category as like occupational licensing mm -hmm. reform as uh, a place where we can have some bipartisan success because it's not a front burner issue. Uh, but if it becomes a highly, you know, crime, for example, becomes a highly salient issue, then it becomes a polarizing issue and you stop being able to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, yeah, you raise a good point. So I'm here to dash your hope. Yeah, great. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, where, where there is still distinction where you can reach out is this increasing and seemingly increasing progressive hostility to things like charter schools, um, which gets to your parent agenda. Uh, it seems like there yeah. is a there is a real cross ethnic uh, appeal to I want my kid to have a better education. And that's where there has long seemed to be. And again, it's mainly unrealized, but at least the opportunity to reach out in a way that is distinctive from the right, as opposed to joining with the left, distinctive from the right, that can actually improve folks' lives in constituencies that are not traditionally Republican. Right, because you've got a deeply there. entrenched Democratic interest group right, uh, and Democratic ideology. Um, that is an obstacle, right, that, that doesn't hold Republicans back. So, I mean, you can see why... You know, maybe Republicans have actually sort of overinvested in that as a, as a breakthrough thing, um, uh, but you but it it makes a certain amount of sense for that sort of structural reason. So I can I can cling to a little bit of hope there. Yes, You'll cling to me. a little bit of hope. That'll be our other T-shirt, along with <laughs> Team Lesser little... Evil. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Because you've dashed my civil libertarian dreams, but uh, I I'll continue to cling to them against all hope. At least, uh, at least some dispatch members really like the idea of a Republican Party oriented around the Bill of Rights. So, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ramesh, anything that I left on the table that you're just burning that you that you really want to tell Jonah's audience? Um. No. No. I'm, I, I think we've, okay. we've covered a fair amount. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I thank you very Vote very much. Pardon. Vote Kodos. Vote Kodos. Yes. Kodos. Don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. You don't, you're not a you're not a Simpsons guy. Oh no 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 no! Tell me about that. You know, this, 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 you know they have the the uh, the campaign between Kang and 
Kodos. I forget which one of them says, we must move forward, not backwards, upward, not downward, and twirling, oh, ever twirling into the future. <laughs> ever twirling into the future. No, I'm, I, I have to admit, and I confess that I might have to turn in my nerd card, that, but my Simpsons, I'm, wet, I'm lacking on my Simpsons lore. I, I think I stopped watching The Simpsons sometime in law school. I really so. did not expect this to be where I outflanked you. <laughs> I know. So I'm, I'm woefully deficient uh, on Simpsons lore, other than what I can find to use in memes and gifs. But uh, yeah, so that, that just completely escaped me. Well, on that Simpsons, on that confession of Simpsons inadequacy, we, we will end this edition of Jonah Goldberg's The Remnant. So thanks so much, Ramesh, for joining us. And Jonah will be back from his undisclosed location very shortly. So you will not have to listen to me unless you go to one of our other Dispatch podcasts, Advisory Opinions with Sarah Isger, or the Dispatch podcast where I join Jonah and Steve Hayes and Sarah on a weekly basis. So please check those out and check out thedispatch.com. Again, this has been The Remnant Podcast, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.